Welcome to the Thriving Artist Podcast, an educational feature of the Clark Hewlings Fund for Visual Artists. The Clark Hewlings Fund exists to provide business training and entrepreneurial learning to visual artists to turn working artists into thriving artists. Thanks to Jerry's Artorama for supporting CHF in this episode of the Thriving Artist Podcast. Jerry's passion is to serve artists. Jerry specializes in supplies and framing, and you can find them at 17 retail locations across the country or online at jerrysartorama.com. Now, we have four guests today on the show, and uh, this is an unusual show because you can see our guests for the first time. Most of our shows are audio only. So forgive me if you're listening on an audio podcast platform, Spotify, iTunes, whatever, that's fine. But be aware, there is a video version of this show available on our website. You'll be able to go there at clarkhealingsfund.org and watch that if you really want the extra context. Now, the four guests start with Kim Pion, who is Executive Director of Southwestern Association for Indian Arts, SWAYA for short. Elizabeth Hewlings, the Executive Director of the Clark Hewlings Fund. Of course, we're the ones bringing you this podcast, and you've met Elizabeth before if you're a frequent listener. Eric Sparr, Founder and Director of Artspan, a website ecosystem that provides a homepage, portfolio, and e-commerce and a shared marketplace for working artists. And Steve Pruneau, who is leading the Vercadia Implementation Project for SWAYA. Vercadia is a 3D immersive virtual reality environment for the 21st century. And of course, I'm Daniel Degree, your host, founder of Madpipe and co-founder of Free Agent Source, which are also partners in the endeavor we'll be discussing today. Welcome to the show, all four of you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Now, I'm going to give you all a quick briefing on the topic of this episode, you all meaning the audience, uh, so that you kind of understand what we're going to be rapping about today. The organizations of everyone here are working together on a groundbreaking project having transformed the most prestigious and longest running market for Native American artists, the Santa Fe Indian market, into a complete virtual experience beginning this year. Now, it went live on August 1st, and the work of hundreds of artists is now featured on websites hosted by Artspan, for which we have Eric Spar here today. And additionally, those artists are receiving art business education from CHF's digital campus. For the broad audience, long-term art collectors and supporters of the market, it's an amazing atmosphere of delight and awe at a time when most of us are cooped up in our own worlds of social distance. Virtual attendees and SWAYA members experience a virtual reality construct created by the cutting-edge developer group Vercadia, and together these leaders and dozens of other sponsors, collaborators, and business partners are broadcasting multiple live-streamed events, including the annual fashion show, award ceremony gala, and SWAYA benefit auction. And the Indian Market 2020, the virtual edition, is a precedent-setting collaboration that is championing the livelihoods of Native American artists and continuing even now a 99-year-old tradition. So stay tuned at the end of this episode. We'll give you several links you won't want to miss. Maybe grab a pencil now. And in the meantime, I want to ask a, a question of Elizabeth and Kim. So Elizabeth Hewlings and Kim Pion, this is not just about virtualizing the market per se, but about collaboration between arts organizations, artists, collectors, and sponsors, and really all the sectors of the art industry. But it began as a shared vision between the two of you. So could one of you briefly tell the story of why and how the SWIA CHF collaboration came about? So I think this was a scenario where SWIA was needing to find a way to pivot after they had canceled their Indian market due to the pandemic. 
And I actually came on board after the organization had spoken with Clark Hewlings Fund on that possibility. And so once I became the executive director of the organization and really vetted that quickly with regards to my board and staff and Clark Hewlings uh, team as well, it just seemed like it was a great partnership for us to um, collaborate together and move this uh, vision forward. It was a concept at the time, and now we're really in a place of vision. And so it's been a, a great partnership, and I'm really excited to be part of, of this, this collaboration. I think it was sort of kismet. I had actually been talking with some people at SWIA going back to January or even end of last year about how to pivot, how to grow, how to expand beyond um, you know, one week in person in August in Santa Fe, New Mexico. And then so many things happened all at the same time. COVID happened. Kim came on board and we really had a meeting of the minds from the get-go. And we're just thrilled to be doing this. I mean, it's, it's very, as Daniel said in the opening, it's very exciting to be able at this moment to do something that is empowering and beautiful and supports economically and artistically a group of people who usually get short shrift and uh, we're getting to put them center stage and having a lot of fun doing it with everybody on this call. Elizabeth, can you uh, follow up those ideas and tell us what does each party bring to the table for the project and for the artists between you and between CHF and SWIA? Just the two of us? Um, sure. Well, I mean, SWIA has been a champion for Native arts for 100 years. I mean, it's coming up in their anniversary. And uh, CHF is interested in promoting artists' ability to earn a living and therefore get their art to market so that the market can decide what it likes and what it wants to buy. We want to level the playing field and get as much out there as possible and let everybody have a fair shot. And so it's a beautiful combination here where we have an organization whose, whose goal is to do that for Native arts and an organization that is coming from the artist perspective to drive that forward. Instead of top down, it's really a bottom up um, proposition. So it sounds like a particular application of what we're doing over at the Clark Healings Fund, meeting the actual brain trust of the Clark Healings Fund. Kim, when you took the director role at SWIA in the spring, did you think that the market would be canceled completely given everything that's happening? Or were you anticipating that this summer would look different at all? Um, I think that there was initially, because that was in mid-April when I actually accepted the position. And within two weeks of that initial baptism by fire, <laughs> uh, it was a scenario where I think we were hopeful that this pandemic would have passed and, and even was there gonna be an opportunity to maybe do some of it virtual and some of it in person. But as we moved forward, even by the end of May, it was a scenario where we were, we were full on and um, if there was going to be an opportunity, what would that look like? And, and now that we're here, of course, it, it's um, not been anything 
but intense. I think just working out of our homes and and trying to develop a a, a virtual Indian market that's um, what does that look like, right? What is the show? What is the market? What is all of those pieces? And so I think by the time we were into this, by the end of May, it was more of, uh, let's just focus on a full-on virtual Indian market. So I have a couple more questions for you and Elizabeth, and then I want to pivot and pull in Eric and then Steve. So let me ask you uh, what I consider a, a bit of a hot topic. What's it like uh, and maybe this is for you, Elizabeth. What's it like to offer this kind of strategic, big picture thinking to the arts community of, yes, you've done this in person. Yes, it's been analog up to now. Yes, you've focused on certain values uh, being the driving values, face-to-face -face interaction, et cetera. But now we're pivoting. Is the arts community ready for this? Or has it been an amazing shock? <laughs> well, really, nobody was ready for this, right? except maybe us, because this is what we've already been trying to do. But what I found is, first of all, I mean, I, I do business strategy for a living. This is where I come from. This is the team that we've built. So it's exciting for me to be able to plug in at that level, at more the organizational strategic level and have those kinds of conversations with people and figure out how to bring more holistic, bigger solutions. And in this moment, what I find is, everybody it, it's just push has come to shove you know something's got to give they absolutely cannot deliver on their mission doing their programming business as usual because they're not allowed to do business as usual so everybody has as a result grudgingly sometimes uh, excitedly other times become more receptive to the idea that they have to pivot and they have to join the 21st century and move forward and we recognize that at the other end of covid People are going to want to reintegrate. They're going to say, well, let's meet in person again. Let's do things again. But, you know, the genie's out of the bottle. We're not going to go backwards. So I look forward to continuing to help organizations strategically move forward in an integrated fashion to meet their mission. And, and the organizations that we work with, their mission is to support working artists. So it all flows very nicely for us. And it's been fascinating to see the various states that people are in about this. And I think that's true for the, everybody's watching that no matter what industry they're in. But for us, it's been an opportunity more than a, a scary place. Well, let's zoom in a little tighter then. Kim, uh, one more question for you. Uh, give us some context. What's it like to work with Native American artists in particular and how are they unique as a group? You know, this this has been a very interesting endeavor for me because it truly is about community. And when you talk about Indian market and what it was as a live event, I hear consistently from artists that they, they're going to miss the opportunity to come together as that community. And this is really, from their perspective, a ceremonial moment for them where, you know, just like when we go to our traditional powwows, you know, we go there not only to dance, but we go there to be in a place where there's community, ceremony, and just this camaraderie around, you know, each other in reference to that event. So I think that is no different than Indian Market. This is a community of artists who have, um, 
you know, some of them have come into this event for decades. And then even with the new individuals who were juried in for the first time this year, they were just so excited to be able to be a part of that. And so that, that's been unique for me because not only has that translated in communication, but I think that it's translated in helping one another to build websites and to really pivot themselves. And so there's an encouragement in that. There's this, this real sense of we can do this and it doesn't matter where you are. You can be a professional who's been doing it for 20 years and you can be somebody who's coming on brand new and they just look at each other as equals in that. And I think that that's special. You know, I lied, Kim. I'm not, I'm not going to pivot yet. I want to ask you, I want to probe that a little bit deeper and, and get more specific. So you're describing what sounds to me a kind of resilience that would it be fair to say is a collective part of the personality of, of Native American artists, given what they've been through. And the reason I ask you this question is that I think it's amazingly appropriate, uh, perhaps even ironic, but certainly interesting that we're doing something so cutting edge that hasn't been done before for a group of people that typically have gotten uh, the last uh, leftover stuff at the end and have had to really push to make a name for themselves, uh, not having access to advantages that many working artists do. Am I off base here or is there something there? No, I think you're absolutely correct. I mean, Working with Native American communities, you're definitely working with a population that's underserved. And I think that that is uh, something that we have recognized, especially in my past experience in working with tribal governments. Those organizational structures are very challenging to even do economic development. And I have to say, this is the first time that I've ever been able to work for an organization who represents Native American tribes, where we're truly in that place of free commerce. And so it allows us to be creative. But the resilience part of this is that it's something that we've been dealing with for generations. And so how do we come out of that miry clay and become something? And so I, I really appreciate being with an organization where we can empower individuals in doing that. And then as an organization, come alongside them to support them in that. And I also feel like it's that one scenario where if you're helping one artist, you're not just helping one artist, you're helping a family, that family is helping a community. And so it really is a ripple effect as opposed to maybe, you know, other artist organizations where it's very individualized. And so when we look at an artist, we look at an artist in reference to their tribal affiliation and what nation are they representing. And for Swaya and our juried artists, you know, that's 220 nations that we're touching personally. And so for us, it's about resilience, not only for an artist, but it's resilience for that community. And resources, is it fair to say, Kim? I mean, uh, I think a lot of people take their broadband connections for granted, et cetera, but a lot of Native Americans have trouble, whether it's the geographic location or being, you talked about being underserved, or it's mm -hmm. other factors, they have trouble just getting Wi-Fi access. Uh, right. And so we're doing something incredibly powerful at a time when when Wi-Fi is still difficult to ensure for everyone in the community. Do you have any thoughts about how that changes? 
Yeah, so I mean, even in reference to when you're looking at tribal governments, you don't look at them as a municipality. I mean, they own everything. They own their school systems, their hospitals. They own the economic development on the reservations. And so in order to have those things, you have to have infrastructure. And part of that infrastructure is being able to have a community that's connected to the internet. And so I feel like even right now, you're hearing a lot of talk with regards to federal funding to be pushed out to these Native American tribes because, you know, if we're not connected via internet, literally you're isolated. And so I think that we see that even with the Navajo Nation, they're the, the largest Native American tribe who's been hit hardest with regards to COVID. And, you know, they're the largest reservation population of artists that we look at from a demographics perspective. And it's been very hard to penetrate that community for lack of internet connectivity. And so I think that even beyond this, after we um, launch this project, one of the things that we're gonna have to take into consideration is um, maybe going into these communities and creating hubs or some sort of collaboration with the tribal government in order to support artists to bring them online. So there's definitely, what do we do beyond this? Because offering websites is one thing, but not having the connectivity is completely different. And so those things are, are definite impacts in reference to these Indian communities. And it's making it very difficult for us to reach out to the 1,017 artists who are juried. And so what are the next steps for us as an organization is the question we're asking ourselves currently. Yeah, I think in, in this era, if you don't have access to consistent, reliable connectivity, you're essentially a digital diaspora. And now more than ever, you're, you're a diaspora in every way. You can be isolated very quickly. Right. I want to take a moment and address those listeners to the show who are not participating in the Indian market by showing their work virtually and invite you to participate in other ways. Now, first and most obvious is to become a member of SWAYA, which you can do for as little as $25 and which nets you a general pass to the virtual market. You can do that at SWAYA.org. That's S-W-A-I-A dot org. Just click membership. And second, by experiencing the art business courses designed to help any artist take their business into the 21st century in CHF's digital campus. Visit clarkhealingsfund.org and click campus. There are a couple of different learning options there. And if you've been there before, but not lately, check out how it has evolved. Now, I wanna pivot and uh, engage you, Eric, because as I understand it, every artist who paid their booth fee for the conference this year got a website on Artspan's platform, your company. And this is an unprecedented leg up in virtualizing marketing and selling for artists. These artists have been receiving training on building out those sites themselves and loading up their online store. You're driving most of that. So my first question is this, on the Artspan website, there's a comment, Eric, about Artspan's role in this project as the hosting environment for participating artists website. And it says, the art is so beautiful that we don't think it needs to be in just one place temporarily. What did you mean by that? What are you suggesting? <laughs> no, I, I think uh, what we meant was simply that um, what you had in the past for the 99 years was one event over what two days, correct? Mm -hmm. Yes. And, and now we're taking, we will be taking, and hopefully in the years to come, that one event as the centerpiece of something much larger. 
which goes throughout the year. I mean, one of the nice things about websites and a marketplace, a virtual marketplace, is that, is that it doesn't end after two days. Uh, that simply becomes a very good place to meet possible collectors, to give them your, your URL, your domain name, and then you meet them again online. And hopefully, uh, you know, they will buy some work. Uh, you, you're talking about the fact that it's not just artist websites, but that what art span provides one of the the keys to its sort of genius is a, a shared collaborative marketplace so an artist puts items in their e-commerce store art crafts uh other material and collateral merchandise whatever they have and that stuff actually goes into a shared marketplace where people can search by medium genre uh, even in this case, you can search by a Native American tribe, by artist name, and a variety of other criteria. That's um, right. So that it, it's kind of a suggestion engine. So it seems to me, Eric, you're helping an event like Swaya's free up selling art from merely time and location and the traditional boundaries that are there. Yeah, I mean, one, one thing to remember about, about the websites is that they are all individually branded. So they serve as an individual storefront for the particular artist. But also they're integrated into the marketplace and people can go directly to the marketplace and find the artist and the work that way. So really they have two venues to sell their work, the marketplace or their website. And they will have three ways uh, in coming years if we all do this again. And that'll be the, the actual Santa Fe Festival and then and then uh, the, the marketplace and their individual sites. Let me throw a couple of questions at you. So one is, how long will these artists' websites, the ones participating in the native market, how long will they be up? For one year. One year, okay, well you were fast. And, and there. Obviously they can extend that uh, at their will. If they want to, they can extend it. All right, so it's a pretty generous uh, relationship. And then I think you were one of the first, if not the first, website builders to focus specifically on artists and or visual artists. Um, is that true? And if so, why artists? Well, I was an artist myself, so I, I knew something about it. And I knew something about the difficulties of, of marketing your art and uh, how people were intimidated by it and, and the control that uh, third parties had um, over their lives, critics and galleries and so forth. Uh, whereas with with the internet age, uh, they pr pretty much were in control of their their destiny. It was it was a very in, empowering thing when it came along. Well, you know, as head of a technology company, you know, you've probably heard uh, the cliche: everything is going digital, everything is going virtual. And so, I don't want our listeners to hear more of that per se uh, as the takeaway from the show. Uh, but I. I would be remiss if I didn't ask you, as the head of Artspan, what shifts you're seeing in the art world since you launched Artspan that have put us where we are now or on the path we are now to specifically something like this virtual conference in sure. 2020. Well, re really, it started for me 25 years ago when I went out to um, California to uh, do commissions for one of the founders of Netscape, which was, as you will recall, the first great internet company. And I realized then that, wow, the whole world was going to change. At least that's what I thought. And I, and I set up a website and um, it was awful. I didn't get any traffic. It was ugly. I had to pay somebody a lot of money. So that's, that was the genesis of, of Artspan itself. Now, I forgot your question. 
Well, I'm, I'm asking you what you're seeing shifting in the market beyond oh, okay. the mere fact of, of digital expanding. There must be something beside, you could have created any number of digital things, a chat room uh, for artists, et cetera, but you chose to go this path and you must have some idea of, of a shift beyond the mere fact of digital. Well, it's, it re really has to do with um, not the death of galleries, but certainly the lesser importance of dealers and galleries and, and so forth. And our artists really have to fend for themselves. And it's not hard. It's a social event, as you say, belonging to a community. And it seemed to me very quickly when I, when I set up my own website, that was great. It was nice to have a website, although it was ugly. But I got zero traffic. So you really have to have a community around you. Uh, you can erect your own community nowadays through Facebook and, and in all, all sorts of different ways. But I like the idea of the individual combined with the community. So it sounds like you're really zooming in on a couple of uh, aspects of that. Uh, if I were to break it into two buckets, one bucket is removing traditional boundaries, cutting out the middleman, reducing friction between buyer and seller, and creating more direct relationship. That that is inevitably becoming a trend, whether it's the decline of galleries per se, uh, or it's just the opportunities that arise from the second bucket, which is that people now have an unprecedented opportunity to collaborate, band together, form informal or formal cohorts and groups, and uh, to work or sell in tandem or in collaboration, i.e. a community. So I think it strikes me, Eric, that you're, you're kind of addressing both shifts. It's not merely a digital company, it's a, it's a company uh, riding the wave of of what's happening economically and socially. Absolutely. I mean, I'm not a digital person myself. Very, I'm very real. Uh, I'm not a tech, as you know. Uh, and this is just, this is a way of expanding your universe if you're an artist. It is the only way, really. Well, that makes me uh, think of you, Steve, because uh, this is a, a song you've been singing for a long time. And so I want to pivot and ask you a question. Uh, one of the most interesting components of the Indian market this year is, of course, NDN World. Uh, and that's an immersive, interactive, virtual reality space for art collectors, patrons, sponsors, and artists themselves. Think of it like Worlds of Warcraft, except uh, for art <laughs> and without all the slaying and weapons, right? And Swaya is hosting multiple events and exhibits in that virtual space for which Vercadia is responsible. I'd like to hear more about that. So I want to ask you this. Can you start by telling us what is Vercadia and how is it being used in the context of the Swaya Indian market? So Vercadia is an open source virtual reality enabled social platform. Um, we call it social VR. Now, just because it's VR doesn't mean you have to wear the VR headset. Um, uh, it works in desktop mode. So the people who maintain that community are very interested in the same themes that we've been talking about here, which is first and foremost community. Uh, creating a shared experience that is not limited by physical distance or uh, limitations that we experience in the real world, which is some forms of prejudice or you don't really fit in and this and that. So it's really the next step in uh, developing communities together. So the second aspect of it is that it is truly open source, which means anyone can um, download the software, put up their own world. 
and, and host the community, or uh, they can just be a participant and join. Let me ask you a couple of follow-up questions, and you know my penchant for being uh, a bit interrogative here. Yeah. Uh, so I'm going to play devil's advocate and, right. and do a, a couple of yeah buts, uh, sure. because I'm riding Eric's wave here, and Eric is talking about you know, community and, and websites or something I understand, and a shared place to sell my art. That I can get my head around. But what you're talking about, it seems hard. It seems fraught with challenges. It, it's, it seems maybe easier to just use video. So take that challenge and tell us why even do a virtual space, a, a VR space at all with Swaya and the market? So, um, and this, this is uh, the, the sort of question and commentary we get back. Um, it was, it was a, a bit of uh, the Swaya team's reaction when we were presenting this idea to them. And uh, we knew we couldn't say, well, you kind of have to experience it to understand. We knew that was not a, a reasonable answer. But for those of us who work in the space and work on the platform, all of our meetings are in space. We don't use Zoom or anything else. Um, and we do feel like we're really together. And our project team is from all over the world. Uh, Germany, Netherlands, Spain, UK, Ukraine, Taiwan, and several places in the US. Many of us have never met, but we for sure have a sense of community, uh, camaraderie, and, and connectedness that I have never felt on Zoom calls. Zoom calls are very good and very fun, but there's something different about experiencing in 3D space. Okay, so you've answered the question I was going to go to next, which is what kinds of connections are possible that maybe can't be accomplished through simpler digital interfaces like Zoom. We're in a Zoom call right now, obviously. Right. Um, and we may just do this in the virtual world at some point if we're lucky. But how close does being in this VR environment uh, that you're describing, how close does it get to an actual hands-on physical experience or is the goal even to replicate that approximate it or maybe even exceed what is possible in a hands-on you know experience um well first of all this is as good as it gets in the current state of the technology so how close it gets um this is it um this is a sort of a perspective uh, thing um every person experiences it a little differently just like we all experience the world a little differently but there is very much a common theme for those who keep coming back in that it is very close to the emotional connection we feel. For example, we tend to apologize sometimes unnecessarily for stepping in front of someone when you are between the speaker and the circular audience. If it's a small group, if we happen to step in, oh, sorry, I didn't mean to step in front. There, there are those sorts of personal space type uh, not really issues, but events that, that happen in world. And so that's a cue that, that says, ooh, this is, this is a lot more than Zoom. There's another effect, um, and, and, it's, and it's very much an, an emotional, it's part of our being, okay? A part of our being that we have uh, in the real world, and uh, it's part of our existence in virtual reality. Um, there's an effect for new people. It certainly happened to me, and I was, um, Kim, I was talking with a person from, the marketing team who is giving me her reaction. And this effect is, I feel like I'm not wearing what I would normally wear. And my first experience, there was all kinds of uh, people who had been there for years. I was, it was my first time in, and I felt like I was wearing shorts and a t-shirt to a gala ball or to 
a corporate meeting and I just felt out of place. Uh, I'm not going to out her, Kim, but she was saying to me, I don't mean to sound so vain, but can I get something else to wear? And, you know, she was kind of apologetic about it, but I loved it because what that told me is she's feeling that emotional connection, that presence um, in the community, in world. And so I, I gave her a complete free pass as we always do. Don't worry about it. That's really good news. And, you know, tried to talk her through what her options were and, you know, also some of the costs for custom avatars and, <laughs> and things like that. You started talking about picking out suits, you know, at the tailor. Um, anyway, so that's the level. Where it is going um, is very much as you say. Uh, right now, uh, if we shift from talking about desktop, the experience in desktop, which most of us um, in Indian world are doing, but if you happen to have a VR headset, um, in the Vercadia community, you very much can find conversations where people are talking about, instead of hand tracking, let's talk about finger tracking. And can we also now start tracking uh, leg movement? Because once that starts to happen, and, and the issue is tracking many, many more data points and a lot more processing. Um, but once you can do that, the applications really start to go up in terms of acting, in terms of choreography, in terms of physical therapy, virtually. Um, it's Native it's, dance. Yes, yes. So Fashion um, shows. <laughs> yeah, so that is for sure the roadmap. But, but even currently, those of us who go in and experience it and stay in, it's that connectedness and community that is already very true and consistent with the real world. Well, let me ask you this, you know, I've gotten your, I want to, I have a couple of follow-up questions for you, but I want to redirect back to Elizabeth and Kim uh, because you're giving us kind of the developer founder perspective and the technical perspective, but uh, Elizabeth and Kim had the foresight, the vision to look at this thing, which uh, in an alpha stage and go, yes, uh, yes to an experiment, yes to something that is not so polished, it is a full-on, you know, consumer-ready experience, yes to something experimental that we, we, we know it's good, we know it works, but we don't know everything we're going to use it for yet. We're going to invent all of that. Uh, so Elizabeth and Kim, why? Why would you do this? <laughs> Let me, I'm going to make one comment and then I'm going to let Kim talk about it because it's really her baby. But, um, I see this as the, the beginning of the holodeck, right? I mean, we all now wear the Star Trek communicator on our wrist or carry them around. This is a holodeck, right? And the thing that excites me about it is it is the intersection of art and tech because it's artists who are making those outfits. It's artists who are going to be doing the dances. It's artists who have constructed the whole thing and, and put their aesthetics. And when we talk about community, my goal and underlying reason for creating CHF and continuing to work on all of this is to have artists and inventors and creators be at the center of community activity and development because that's when we move forward as a species and that's how we support our planet and that's what turns us all on to Steve's point that the marketing woman wants to wear what she wants to wear. So we're in an age of personal expression. And what this does is bring our aesthetic sensibilities and our interest in expressing it with an artist capability and sensibility at the core and at the beginning of it, as opposed to being appended on at the end, which we all know is hollow. And yet we see it all the time. 
So that's the thing that is the most exciting to me about it. But Kim, it's your, <clears throat> your baby, so. Yeah, so I think that for me, it was a scenario where uh, it really was from a marketing standpoint. I feel that we, as an organization, are in a place where we really have to take in, into consideration generational transfers that are occurring. And so when you look at the demographics regarding our collectors, they're 65 years and older. And so what are we going to do in the future? And this, this really went back to my interview with the board because one of their questions to me specifically is what are you going to do to take us into the next hundred years? And so, um, you know, the, when I was in North Carolina, I was there with my children and with my grandchildren. And, um, you know, I'm just watching them interact in this world called Fortnite. And so I have a six-year-old playing a game with a 26-year-old and they're communicating with each other. And it was their way of socializing with each other in a space where they, they had a goal. And so they worked together, it was community. And so I was just even before coming on to Swaya asking questions of my kids saying, who are you playing with? And cause she's talking and, and I'm wanting her attention. And she's like, uh, can we talk after this game? <laughs> so when, um, when I actually got the proposal from Steve regarding what this in world was, there was a statistic that he had given me that said, you know, Fortnite has only been in existence for three years and they have 250 million followers. And I just, I had an aha moment like this, this platform has given me the opportunity to capture a generation that we're not currently capturing, but it also allows us as an organization to do some very creative work. And I think it goes back to what Elizabeth is saying is that we can commission artists to help us with developing avatars. We can use it as a cross-cultural reference and really share with the world about who are these Native Americans? Do they really live in teepees? Do they really exist? And so, you know, we get to have an opportunity to not only bring this platform as a way to educate globally who we are as a people group and be able to use it to promote art. And so to me, that art is multimedia. And so it can be 2D, it can be 3D, it can be a fashion show, a runway and avatars, it could be a museum, it could be so many things. And so I just saw it as an opportunity for us as an organization to be able to use something where we can go in, have that sense of community, communicate with people and be able to share, share who we are. And, and also there was one other reason that I loved it and it was this, is that I think that even in reference to a previous question that you gave me regarding the pandemic and was there any thought regarding going physically again and i just think that you know here we all are in august and we've been in this thing for six months do we see it going away in the near future no and so having said that this is also another way for us to come alongside other art markets, help other artists. I mean, it just allows us to be creative in so many ways. And so 
it had so many layers to it for me personally, where I got excited about it for sure. And, and it's definitely a challenge. I mean, I'm, I'm not going to lie. This is, this is cutting edge technology. This is a scenario where you have to have partners in this who are patient with each other, are patient with the people who are trying to get in and understand. And I feel that as we move past Indian market, it's still going to be a platform that we're going to use in the future. And it's going to be one that we're all going to learn together. Let me stay with you a minute, Kim. Uh, I sort of stole it away from from Steve, but I'm glad we're zeroing in uh, on this a little bit. And I'm going to come back around to Eric and Steve in a minute. But I want to I want to stay on this topic of the virtual 3D world and Vercadia. First, I want to say that uh, I love that your analogy about Fortnite, because kids do say this all the time. They they try to tell their parents, you know, mom, dad, you don't understand. There are things we do in world. We build relationships. And I see a lot of parents kind of laugh about that over drinks, shrug it off, go, yeah, yeah, they build relationships. But they're describing something real, uh, something that has a level of depth that goes beyond email and cell phone texting even, uh, and certainly motivates a lot of people to build an entire online life, set of personas and community. So you actually took that seriously when your, your kids talk to you about it. And I think that's nothing short of profound. Uh, I'm happy about that. You know, to stay with you on this, Kim, in the virtual world, you're actually reproducing some of the experience that's central to the native market, costumes, Native American clothing, native and non-native avatars. Uh, In conjunction with Steve, you guys are doing the work to design and produce that stuff. And I think some of the the native digital artists are actually contributing some of those elements, Chad Yellow, John Lil Coyote. But specifically, Kim, to out you a little bit, your avatar in the virtual world is looking great. Could you describe some of the process of having that built? Well, so when I was um, made the decision that, well, no, I was actually in the conceptual side of this. And one of the things that I was wanting from Steve was, okay, so if I call up a friend and have him develop a a regalia for me and so uh chad chad um was uh, an artist that i have been in the powwow circle with since he was a little boy he was dancing with my kids and so i called up chad and uh, asked him if he would develop an avatar for me and so I thought initially, oh, put me in a traditional dress. And, you know, he was just so cute because he goes, I don't see you in a traditional dress. Is it okay if I put you in a jingle dress? And I said, yes. And so when we actually, when I saw the the drawings of what this avatar was going to look like, and so the drawing was a front version, a side version, and a back version, full version of me in a jingle dress outfit, Do you know that really threw me back to when I was in the circle at powwows with my kids and my friends and my family abroad. And so it was not only touching to me, but it was profound to me because now when I go into Indian world, I'm actually in my traditional regalia and, you know, jingle dresses um, represent for our people Uh, a form of intercession even and prayer. And so, you know, I've just felt like this has been a journey of intercession and prayer for me, not only for 
Swaya, but for artists and for the world. And so I feel like this is a scenario where not only do we get to share who we are as a people group, but really, you know, what our traditions are and what they mean to us. And so the whole process, and I got to give this conceptual to my board and they were astounded and excited about it. And so I think this is about a vision and, and people are starting to catch it. And I love that. Well, it was right to uh, steal it away from Steve and pivot to you, but I'm going to pivot back. I have exactly three more questions about Vercadia, uh, and I, I sense also the need to give Steve a moment to comment at the end to, of this segment to finish up before I, I zoom back out. So I, I need to ask these questions because it's the job of a host to channel the audience and they will hang a podcast host if he doesn't get answers to them immediately about the following things now that we've had that discussion. Uh, so here are the questions and whoever knows this information among the team can answer. Number one, where is this Vercadia environment at the Swaya market, this NDN world, and, and how can I get in there to participate? Yeah, all right. Um, I'm... I'm going to give you short answers because there is a backstory to the jingle <laughs> dress that must be told and Kim doesn't even know it. <laughs> oh good. Um, so I will indulge uh, the host. All right so um, anyone can actually download this um, uh, at Vercadia.com. Uh, there's a client uh, software we call it an app you can install on Windows, Mac, and Linux. And there, it, uh, there are a variety of worlds uh, that you can go into, and there's a little pop-up panel. It's almost like using a browser, only this is different software. Uh, and you can go to different locations, and NDN, those letters, NDN space world, are one of them. Um, the only difference is you do need a membership uh, from Swaya, which they would gladly welcome during this month of virtual Indian market. Um, and you can get into Indian worlds um, once you have a membership from their site. Yeah, you know, it's a little bit like, I used to play EverQuest. I'm not much of a gamer, but when you log in and you've got your character, you can enter any number of servers and worlds. Correct. Uh, and I found the Vercadia experience to be very much like that. And I went exploring. I dropped into a couple of worlds uh, that were off the beaten path and had a little fun in there. So uh, it, it was a- it is, it is that. Cool. Yes, very much so. All right, so question number two, and thank you for indulging. I promise I'll come back to you for the Jingle Dress story. Question number two, is there art on the walls and how do we buy it if it's there or that we can see it? There is art on the walls um, and there is a pop-up button open here or click here. What it does is it pops open the Swaya website uh, for, for this year's entries uh, for that piece of art only. Um, and from that, and also some of the information in world, you can find the artist. Um, you certainly tipped your hand about the future of this, which is we do want it um, to be possible to just uh, buy right there. Well, this is coming, and, and certainly uh, there is art available every day on uh, the SWIA website both in its ongoing auctions, but also from the Artspan Swaya Marketplace, which is prominently featured at the top of the Swaya website. So if you go to swaya.org and, and click through to the market, you'll see it. Please go there and experience some of what Eric is talking about, about a shared market, especially if you're an artist, but also if you want to obtain some of this art, which is selling really, really fast before it's gone and be able to say you did. I want to ask the third question then, which is uh, there are some 
real-time or several real-time events in Vercadia's NDN world as part of the market this year. Could someone elaborate on what events are we talking about? What's there that I could participate in besides sort of being in the world, walking around on my own time freely? Sure. Already right now, there is an exhibit of all of the juried, all the work submitted to be juried that you can walk in and experience. And there's a panel next to each work that describes about it and who did it and everything. And that is up until uh, tomorrow. And then on the, the 13th, which is tomorrow, we will be rearranging a little bit. Thank you to Vercadia. Or at least it'll be, we have the preview of the final pieces. Um, and that is a private VIP experience. And it's also the official opening of the space. So there'll be an invocation. Um, so that's our first uh, official event. And then on the 15th, is the award ceremony. So of those finalist pieces, uh, we will be announcing who gets best in category, who gets best in show, et cetera. Um, we already have judging. Uh, the judges have recorded um, why they like the pieces, because of course they already know who won. We just haven't announced it yet. So that will be happening in world. Um, there will be, well, I don't know, Steve, What where we ended up with the end of the, the month, if we're going to try to do some kind of avatar catwalk or not, there's still talk. As, as oh, it, I, I assure you, there's, <laughs> you know, of course, Kim and yourself get to kind of have the final say, but we are for sure going to be persuading you to do uh, a few things like that. Just yeah. to give you a, a little hint, uh, as you know, I've been helping out with the workshops with some of the artists, you know, how do I get in and this and that. Every artist I talk to, says, hey, how can we get in here? How can we do more? And so absolutely, we, we're, we need to cook up a few things, sort of almost like an after party. So, and, and our crew at Mercadia are pretty good at after parties, so stay tuned. They are. I've been to their daily movie screenings, uh, which are kind of a hoot uh, for those who want to go exploring. But I find that this is this is, as Elizabeth said at the start of our conversation, the nexus of technology and art. You give an artist a new toolkit with new paints and new colors and new fabrics and building blocks, whether they're polygons or, or paintbrushes, and they're going to say, what else can you let me do with this? What rules can I break? So I love the fact that this is kind of an open space. And what I'm hearing emphasized now is we can kind of do whatever we want. If we want to get in there and have a meetup, we want to get in there and have a panel discussion, we want to get in there and show a movie or, or get in there and do a catwalk, we can totally do it. So Steve, I want to, before I pivot back to the larger group and some of our final questions wrapping up the show, I want to ask you for the jingle dress story. So what do we not know about Kim Pion's experience? Yeah, and what, what you were saying about that marriage of technology and art, um, I have to give credit to Elizabeth because she no doubt, uh, she has never told me what she was thinking, but we were not doing well when we were presenting to Kim uh, and the Swaya team in the first, I would say 45 minutes or so. And it was pretty much dying. Uh, and we had stepped into this discussion about community and that's where Kim started hearing, instead of this thing about, are you gamers or what? Kim started hearing community and she told that story about uh, about Fortnite. And then uh, we started talking about identity and 
representation in world. And one of the things that our team was kind of sweating out is, well, we don't know how to make a Native American avatar, but it's one of those things where, okay, just put it aside, don't worry about it, let's just talk to Swaya and see what happens. Um, so Elizabeth, once this is the conversation starting to go, Elizabeth kind of pops off with, but Kim, why can't you get some Native American artists to work with the Vercadia team? And it was sort of like supernova explosion, boom. And we were like, ooh. And then I forget how the conversation went, but as we were wrapping up near the end, Kim says, you know, I really would like to see what I look like in Native American regalia from my community. And then we wrap up the call. Right afterwards, debrief. We've so got to do this, whether the project is on or not, we've got to do this. But we, you know, we wanted to be cool about it and not circle back, you know, within 10 minutes after the call. So we, we let it lay, but it was just absolutely on. Um, and then further to Elizabeth's point, Kim put us in touch with Chad Yellowjohn and great experience. What am I, you know, a little confusion. Okay, what am I doing and why am, what do you need? But he got it. And, and then he provided perfect reference artwork. He worked with our artist, um, who is also just a great intuitive sense of 3D space and color and placement and all kinds of things. So they worked together to create the jingle dress. And I saw the screenshot of it and I was like, ooh, that's really amazing. And I gotta tell you, so Kim comes in and the artist who made it from uh, Chad Yellowjohn's reference work um, gave her the link and she puts it on. And I gotta tell you, it was like one of those movie moments when somebody either, whether it's a man or a woman, they walk out and they go from, you know, the, a person into, oh my. And um, I, I got chills, it was, oh. And so, Kim, your story uh, about how you felt, you know, we had a similar reaction. Wow. So thank you for that. All right, so I'm going to pivot now. Thank you for that, Steve. And kind of go into the final segment of the show and ask some more general questions of the audience, of you guys, rather, for the audience. Um, so, you know, it's people may be listening to this show a year from now, but if they're listening right now in August 2020, um, it's almost too obvious to mention now that we're in a new normal, that the pandemic has pushed a transition to virtual in general. Um, so the first question is, how do you see artists ultimately benefiting from a pivot to leveraging online channels to sell, network, create their own relationships with collectors? And anybody can take that question. Well, I would start by saying um, the majority of Splaya artists historically have earned a substantial amount of their income every year during Indian market. And that was one of the reasons that we were so adamant that we have to do something. Um, because we can't just have an economic catastrophe fall on the heels of a medical one. But the goal is to make it so that these artists and many other artists can earn a living year round. So that's where the, the art span piece really comes into play is you have to be able to engage in e-commerce and understand what you bring to it. You know, so who are you as an artist? What are you trying to accomplish? What is your message? What is your story? What is your brand story? What are your sales 
strategies and how are you going to use e-commerce and an individual website that belongs to you is really key to delivering all of that. So that I think is the biggest piece of it all is again, to put the artists at the center of it and give them the tools and the opportunity to earn a living so they can continue making art, which we all benefit from. Well, not to put too fine a point on it, but you emphasized uh, individual websites. That makes me want to turn immediately to Eric. Uh, just because this show is a form of, of business education for artists delivered in podcast format and ask a question I think a lot of artists have asked us before and have on their mind, which is, Eric, do you agree that each artist should have their own individual website? Obviously, I'm asking somebody that does this for a living, but why not then? I'm playing devil's advocate like I did with Steve. Why not just sell your work on Etsy, even if you're going to do it online or eBay or some other marketplace like that and not bother? Uh, is there a reason? Yeah, there, there's several reasons. One is branding. I mean, you, you, you really need to brand your own website and you need to control the look of it. You need to frame it to frame your work uh, as you feel it ought to be framed rather than as Etsy feels it ought to be framed. They're just innumerable ways that it, that it comes back to you in a positive way. It, it also looks better for your buyers. I mean, uh, Etsy is, is fine. I mean, but it's, it's a DIY site. And, and I think artists can go a little bit beyond that. And, and in many cases, way beyond that. So... Okay, so we're talking about uh, not just a shift uh, to selling online, but a shift in the burden of needing to do the work of distinguishing yourself as an artist, of branding yourself effectively as part of, uh, as part of what we're seeing in this trend and part of what we're at the forefront of in doing this event. So it behooves me to ask the following question. I don't know who to direct this to, so please, whoever can take this, do it. Uh, but we're dying to know this. Uh, the producer, I have to give credit to Penelope, our producer for, for this one. Do you think the, the virtual environment changes which demographic of collectors is interested in buying the artist's work? I think it expands it. I think, I think it makes it a little younger. Yeah, that's, I was gonna say. I've seen innumerable studies that, uh, for example, there's some galleries out on the West Coast that, that have done the majority of their, their sales through, through the internet. And they obviously have physical spaces and people go to them and they go to them for openings and this, that, and the other. But, but really where they do most of their sales is, is, over, the, is over the web. And um, you know, one of the things that, that I want to just mention briefly, and that is that obviously this is not a one-time event. I mean, the festival may be a, a one-month festival, but really I'm looking towards uh, the holiday season. And I think we, we should all get together and, and figure out how we're going to promote these artists and their work and how they're going to promote themselves too, because this is supposed to be an empowering thing. So why not? Um, there, I've said my piece. No, I think that's, that's key, Eric. Um, <laughs> I, I appreciate that. Um, the point is, I think Etsy is today's gallery, right? There's nothing wrong with it. You should be on it. You should be everywhere, right? Yep. You, should, you should partner with people. You should build relationships. You should still have a gallerist. You, know, you want people to help promote you. You want them to put you in group shows. You want to do all of those things. But I think it's a fallacy that the artist ever could get away without a personal brand. 
you know, that was the, that was one way that artists were taken advantage of and stigmatized is you're not allowed to self promote. You shouldn't do that. You should just make your art and then let other people sell it. Selling is a dirty word. Somebody else has to do that for you. And the best yeah. of all possible worlds is the two, the two wedded. It, it, it has to be together because it's just that having your own website is one example of how you put out your own message and your own brand and the message has to go with the work that you create. So of course you should be represented everywhere, but it has to start with you, who you are, what you're trying to accomplish and how you accomplish that. And that is what we're trying to teach. And that is what having your own website, it's like you used to have a business card and now you've got a lot more than that. And yes, you can. And that we say that all day long. Yes, you can. And yes, you must. Well, this is interesting. It's my back door into kind of the, the wind up topic of the show, which is virtualized education focused on business training, entrepreneurship, the essential skill sets like branding, like selling, like marketing to a certain audience. So I find it interesting. You know, uh, I heard you say, Eric, that um, you think that age group will become a bit younger among collectors. Um, I think some artists will will think that limits them. They're not gonna reach the usual age group they've been reaching if that age group is say over 40. Others will see it as, hey, here's a whole new market, an opportunity I'm not currently reaching in a way to tackle it. But I wanna point out that when I look at who's participating in the virtual market this year, we've got good demographic data that says that the largest bucket of, and, and more than half of the people participating in the SWIA virtual market are 55 or older. As many are 55 to 64 as are 65 and over, they divide neatly into, into half and half, but together they constitute about half of the market per se. So are we not, not at the same time that we're teaching artists to distinguish themselves and potentially reach new markets, are we also not teaching a whole new cohort of collectors uh, to interact with artists in a new way? Well, I think it's been growing for quite a while. I mean, certainly the last 20 years, the internet has been central to our lives, uh, old or young. Um, I think it's more difficult for older people, or it was more difficult for older people to envision a world where they would actually buy art online. But now it's second nature. And certainly uh, tools like our AR feature make it so easy to envision or to actually see, to preview the artwork in their homes. There really, there's, there's no barrier, I think, to going ahead. As long as, um, as, long as they have that, that comfort zone where they're dealing with a reputable organization and, and the artists are under your roof. Talking to you, uh, Kim. Yes. All right. So we've got uh, just about five more minutes before we need to wrap up. And I have a total of three more questions before we call it a day. It's been a good long episode. I wanted to give us extra time here because I think that when you bring five people together to talk about an event like this, uh, you've got to go into an extra inning. So I imagine I've worn you guys out. Uh, but here are my three questions. First, uh, Steve, I would be remiss knowing privately that this is an interest of yours if I didn't ask you on this show about this while we have you. You were on an earlier podcast episode and I recommend our listeners go back and find that in our archives about selling art and I thought it was uh, spectacular. 
But the question we didn't talk about then or, or that I'd like to ask you about now is we talk about teaching artists business. We talk about art, uh, to quote Elizabeth Hewling, art is a business and artists should run it, uh, which is now the CHF's tagline. Um, but you also see business as art and not merely in some lighthearted way, but you're always advocating, in my experience, for bringing the emotional sector back into the workplace, for bringing creativity into the way we do entrepreneurship, the way we conceive of and run our own businesses. You almost liken sometimes a business that is fun to run and worth running as building a, a rock band, you know, uh, being a member of Fleetwood Mac. So you, you think in those terms, uh, games, movies, rock music. Can you tell us a little bit about Am I accurate in what I'm expressing, but can you put it in better words and tell us a little bit about why you think that way? You're accurate and you're, you're putting it in better words because um, with this and, you know, Barstool, I could go on quite a lot. So, <laughs> uh, yeah, business is no longer a rational endeavor. It's a creative performance. Um, I had a traditional business education from the 20th century, and it was all about data and rational decision-making, probably the worst advice I ever got. Um, and it was pounded into me in ranks and ranks of business management trainees. Um, and that is not why we do what we do. It is not why we buy things. It is not why we choose to live where we live. It's not why we buy from a particular artist. We buy because there's something that they're communicating that is shared in us. Oh, that person gets me. Whether we're talking about a musician or sculptor, painter, whatever medium. And so when we end up talking with that person directly, I, I'm digressing a little bit, talking about the in-world experience, but we have even more of a connection. Oh, now I really want to buy from this person. I love the story they told. So, um, but you asked, why is this my perspective? And when we have businesses insisting that it's not personal, it's just business, we're denying a whole, you know, all, most of our humanity, we're denying when we make that statement. And when we say you really need to fit in here in order to keep your job. Um, we're denying self, we're denying identity, whether we're talking about gender or race, or I'm just a nerd who wants to fly my flag, all of that. Many of us come from a world where that is denied. And so I do think we are now crossing the threshold into a world where, no, we want to buy business as a performance art. And I'll give you an example. So um, hybrid cars and electric cars were pretty much ho-hum. So how are we going to change the planet? Um, well, Tesla comes along and says, oh, yeah, that doesn't really do it. Let me put this in a really racy dress. And oh, yeah, the Tesla Roadster, let's talk electric cars. And so um, that's the deal with all kinds of businesses. It's not enough to just be rational. Um, we want our whole existence. And so, yeah, that's the basis of my perspective. Well, I, I asked that question because, again, we rarely get you on the show. And the premise of the Thriving Artist podcast, which has the word thriving in the name for a reason, it's all about helping working artists thrive. 
is that art is a business and artists should run it. And one of the, the big pushbacks we get from traditional sectors of thinking and uh, across the art industry, sometimes artists, uh, definitely in some of the gallery areas um, where there's a, a financial interest in believing a certain thing sometimes, uh, and even uh, from nonprofits that say they serve artists, is that art and business are like oil and water. They don't belong together. Business is a necessary evil, and artists really should stay as far away from business as we can. But listening to you, you are actually making the case for me, and this is the reason I, didn't, I did a roundabout instead of asking you the question directly, is you're making the case that business is not only not foreign uh, to the creative professional or the visual artist, not alien to them, but business as creative performance is the artist's normal domain. Uh, looked at in the traditional way, it's just business, it's just moving widgets, we're just the Rockefellers here. Yeah, of course that stuff feels alien. It's alien to the rest of us too, who have to wear the right kind of clothes to get promoted. But business looked at, to quote you, uh, and you've said this many times, that's a Steve Perdoe quote, business is a creative performance. Uh, looked at it that way, it is more proper to the artist, to the creative professional, to be in business than almost anybody else. It's their natural domain. So I love that you said that. And with that, I want to go to Elizabeth Hewlings for the second to the last question um, and zoom out even farther because you run into this when trying to work with other organizations, corporations who have a social mission, uh, people that understand what's in it for them, uh, some part of what we're trying to do, but, but face challenges in seeing the vision or the cause that CHF is putting out here. So if what we're doing with SWIA, if the five of us here, if Eric, Steve, Kim, and your collaboration is a prime example of what it looks like when multiple sectors work together to adapt quickly, to help artists, what else might be possible going forward? And can this problem-solving collaborative model be applied to a wider variety of challenges and crises? Well, it's the only way we ever get anything done as a species. You know, I mean, when when we were in caves, somebody came up with a new idea to hone a stick to be sharper and then went and was successful hunting, came home, told a story around the campfire and then drew a picture of it so that other people could then replicate it. So, I mean, that's that's just how we work. Right. It, if it doesn't start with vision and innovation and you don't know why the heck you're doing something or you're doing something because you're going to make a bunch of money quick. That's, yeah, maybe you'll make a bunch of money quick, but you're going to end up with something that doesn't really serve anybody else in the long term. And right now, we're in a moment, I mean, you mentioned Tesla, Steve, but we're in a moment where we have got to change the way we do a lot of things in order to not just make sure Swai is here for another hundred years, but make sure that any of us is here for another hundred years. And the way to do that is by involving the artists, entrepreneurs, visionaries, innovators at the beginning of the process. So I, I mean, you're right, Daniel, I've seen it over and over again, working at Citibank, working with the chiropractor down the street, working with Human Rights Watch, working with every arts organization I've been involved in, that you have to back up and say, what are we trying to do anyway? What is our strategy? And therefore, how are we going to accomplish it? And that is a creative exercise. And people become afraid of that because they are taught 
not to marry the two. And with many of our artists, we have to break them out of that and say, you're giving a, a proposal to a corporation to be the artist who gets to supply the art for their campus, or I don't know what. Um, and we get a proposal that's really ugly and has no color in it, and they just it, it's just boring. And then they append to that all of the art that they've made. And you, it's just so hard to say, you're allowed to bring all of your creativity to that business proposal, because why not bring your creativity to everything that you do? And artists actually do have an innate advantage there if we can allow it out. Everybody is creative. Everything that you do in life is creative. And if it's not, stop doing it. Go do something else or find another way to do it that is creative. I see it in every walk of life. Excellent point. Uh, I'm going to finish up with the following question. And this is for all of you, any of you, whoever would like to take a stab uh, to add something, correct somebody on, on this or whatever. Beyond this year's market in August 2020, what are the midterm and the long-term goals or anticipations for collaboration between the organizations that are represented here today by the four of you? Well, I think it's, uh, and I'll, I'll speak to just some initial things. I mean, like, you know, we are definitely entertaining uh, conversations with organizations who are unable to pivot at this time. But even more so than that, I, I think that, you know, Eric said, well, what about Christmas? Let's do something for Christmas. And I'm like, no, we're going to do something for September, you know? And so one of my thoughts for September is doing a live cookbook where we feature Native American chefs and Talk about our indigenous foods. And, you know, food is a form of art. It's not one that we've probably ever talked about at Swaya. But now that we're virtual, we can get very creative in what, whatever that theme is for the month. And so I think that for us, we want to stay online. We want to continue to work very closely with every partner on this podcast. And how do we get creative to help other organizations, help order artists abroad, and then let's develop programming that keeps us connected and drives people to our website so that we can drive people to the artists' websites. And so, you know, we're talking about artists and we're talking about their economic development and their business development. And I think that simultaneously, Swaya is thinking about its economic development and its business development. So as we go through that journey together, it's marketing together, it's branding together, it's being creative. And, and I, I just love the conversation that you guys are having regarding that everything that we do in this world, whether it's a business person, accountant, you know, I was an accountant and I considered that an art. And, um, and so I love the fact that what I did in that profession really did prepare me for what I'm doing today in reference to marketing and getting creative. Yeah. Anyone else? Well, I have all kinds of ideas for how <laughs> I want to work with all of the people on this call. I'd like to see us grow and grow in different ways and uh, it, in ways that, that we really don't know that we're going to grow in. I right. think the, the VR way is one of those ways, and, and there will be others. I mean, we don't really know what this could look like in five years. 
Right. And that's an exciting thing to really contemplate. So it sounds like, Eric, to take some earlier advice from you or earlier vision, it's important to, to keep the relationship. The, we don't know what we're going to be building or how we're going to be collaborating. We just know that we will be and that we are. Uh, and the community that you emphasized earlier, we're, we're forming that here. Would you say that's right? Well, I'd say that we're one element of the community, yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Steve, any thoughts? I'll leave you with two. Um, so first of all, uh, as you know, professionally, I, I'm very much interested in the future of work and how are we as humanity evolving, even if we think we're not evolving. And very much so we're evolving out of humans as a component of production, whether it's service production or whether it's manufacturing production. Um, and so what does that leave? That leaves humans for maintaining productive processes and more importantly, designing the output of those processes and then designing the processes themselves. Two very important design components. And so Elizabeth, you were talking about this. Um, the future of humanity is creativity, design, imagination. And that is all swinging back toward people who have, uh, I don't know if it's literally sidelined, but we talk about artists not being given full credit, maybe in the 20th century and prior centuries, where now it is all about design. What does Apple say? Apple does not say manufactured in China. It says designed in California. And that is their signature, right? Um, so that's, that's number one, is that I very much believe it's swinging back to the artist community. And Kim, I think this is Swaya's time this century. Um, for Native American artists. The other thing is we were talking about this, what happens, and I'll, I'll bring it down to just what's happening with the, the Vercadia platform. So we had some really unexpected experiences. We, in retrospect, we should have known. Um, but when we were paired up by Kim with various artists to work on avatars, um, the little micro explosions that were going off and, and the potential and, oh, how can we do more of this? And this is great, I get it. And it, people were getting the ideas really fast. And the thing that causes innovation is these unexpected reactions when you're hanging out together talking. And this is, when you look back in history, the way certain parallel inventions happened, it's because they were in each other's orbit. They were influencing each other. We see this in music, people start reverbing back and forth. Um, now that we're, we can no longer have distance separating us, I predict that this is going to accelerate some really interesting creative explosions. And I don't know, I, I leave it at that. I don't know what it's going to be about, but I believe it's going to happen because it sure happened with us. You've been listening to The Thriving Artist Podcast, an educational feature of the Clark Healings Fund for Visual Artists. If you've enjoyed this program, please be sure to subscribe to new episodes and review your experience on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you tune in. To participate in the virtual Indian market, go to swaya.org, that's S-W-A-I-A.org. To purchase some amazing art and support this incredible event, go to artspan.com slash swaya. And to get early access to the virtual world Vercadia, where you'll find Steve Pruneau tending the virtual bar more often than not, visit vercadia.com, that's V-I-R-C-A-D-I-A.com. And of course, we've already mentioned CHF's digital campus. This show depends on support from listeners like you. Consider 
giving to keep this show broadcasting and bringing you events and guests like these. Click give at our website, clarkhealingsfund.org. And for those desiring to sponsor an episode, you can do that at clarkhealingsfund.org slash go slash sponsor. Thank you for listening. And thank you, Kim, Eric, Elizabeth, and Steve. It's been really great having you. Thanks, everybody. Yeah. Two.